Thank you so much for checking out the Connect Church podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired by this week's sermon. So let's jump right in and check out this week's message. You need to be thinking to yourself, you are not Pastor Anthony. Where is my pastor, right? Let me give you a little update on Pastor Anthony. Thank you, Pastor Zach. A little update on Pastor Anthony. This past week, we had a stomach bug that was floating around our team a little bit. And of course, Pastor Anthony got hit with the stomach bug. Um, Because we are around a lot of people in a given week, uh, we always do things just to have a bunch of caution, knowing that it was a stomach bug. And uh, even though we knew that, we said, you know what, he's going to go take a test just just out of abundance of caution. We knew it was negative. Of course, his COVID test was negative, and we thought that there was a good chance he'd be able to be back today, but he's still recovering. It's just one of those bugs that linger a little bit. So be praying for your pastor just as he recovers today, and he can be back with us next week as, uh, as, he, as he gets through his little stomach bug. All right, so that means, though, you get me, right? I mean, it could be worse. It could be worse. Thank you. My wife's at home with the kids. They clapped for me. You know, it was good, man. Hey, you know, I hear Pastor Anthony talking all the time about how he met Aaron and makes fun of his mama. And I thought, you know what? If I'm going to get to share today, maybe I'm going to share a little bit before we jump into the Word of God about how I met my wife, Rachel. If you don't know Rachel, she is beautiful, incredible mama, does great and, and driven in everything she does. And I absolutely love my wife, I remember, I don't know if you, you remember the first time you saw your spouse, but I actually remember the very first time I saw, I saw Rachel. I was with our pastor, Anthony, here. We were at the fair. By the way, the fair's coming, I think, I guess Labor Day week, right? We were at the fair, and every year they have the fairest of the fair. My wife, not knowing it'd be my wife at the time, was competing in the fairest of the fair, and I went with Pastor Anthony. I remember very specific things about that night. I remember that Miami and Florida State were playing each other. I remember it was three to nothing in the first quarter. I don't know why I remember that, but I remember that, right? I remember sitting at the very top of the seats with Pastor Anthony and Rachel coming out and competing, and he looks at me, he says, hey, you know she's in our youth group. I said, no, really? Just left it at that, you know? Just, I just graduated high school and started helping at the church at that very Interesting. You know, it wasn't long after that we go to Hearts on Fire Youth Conference. Again, standing in the back of the youth conference with our pastor. All the kids are up front. I see Rachel, and I did what any, I guess, 18, I guess I was 18 years old at the time. And I looked at Anthony and said, hey, $5, I can get her to go on a date with me. He said, no shot. I was like, watch me. You know? And so naturally, I went up. She was sitting on the third, fourth, or fifth row with a group of friends, and I sat down right beside her, introduced myself. Not long after introducing myself, she moved seats. And uh, it was a little humiliating. And so I did, I'm, if I, I'm not much, but I'm persistent, all right? So just being me, I did what I knew to do at that time. I moved again next to her. So she moved seats, and I thought, well, pfft, it's not that easy, all right? Like this is a closed auditorium. There's only so many seats available. We're going to make this work, right? So I sit back down, and naturally she did when she moved seats again, right? I mean, and she just uh, got back up and moved seats, and I thought, no, this ain't happening. So I got up, and I moved seats, and I kid you not, a third time, my wife gets up, finds a different seat. She says to this day, I was just moving to be closer to my friends, and I thought, that's what I was doing too, just moving closer to be with my friends, right? And I sit beside Rachel. We left that day, or the conference ends, and I remember thinking to myself, you're fighting a losing battle, There's been zero positive signs in this moment that she has any 
interest in you whatsoever. You've got to do something to grab her attention, which is what I did. I remember going up, and our youth group would take the Hearts on Fire shirts, and if you had six kids in the room, they would bundle the shirts together, and they'd wrap them up so that, so that the chaperone could just carry them to the room real easily, right? Just not lose shirts. I remember thinking, you got to do something to get her attention. She's not looking at you. She moved three times. You're going to lose $5. This is bad, right? And so I thought, okay, here's what I'm going to do. And I took that shirt, that pile of shirts, five or six shirts. She was three rows back, and I thought, this is perfect. I took it, and I had the best throw. I can't really throw very well, but I had the best throw of my life, right, to the side of her temple. And she turned around and looked. I thought, do something funny. You know what I mean? Like, do some, get her attention. Do something funny. And that moment ended, and we left that day. It wasn't long after that, we were at church just a few weeks later, and there was an event going on at church, and she was reading because she was intelligent. I was holding a flag because that's, I could hold things, right? And so we were sort of in the same area, and after church that day, there was a young man who had interest in Rachel. Everywhere she went, he went. And I'm not going to mention his name, but they were talking after service, and I just noticed through my time pursuing her that everywhere she was, he was. It was sort of frustrating for her. And so I see this moment taking place, and I walk over, and I introduce myself to him. But as I introduce myself to him, I wink at her like, you're good. You can leave. And I wrote her later that day on MySpace. You don't know what MySpace was. It was the thing, right? And I wrote her later that day on MySpace. And I said these words, hey, since I saved you from, insert the name, I guess you can call me your superhero. Huh? That's pretty good right there. I thought all day on that one statement to which she responded, speaking of superheroes, have you seen James Bond? Yes. I said, no, I've not. She said, I have. It was great. I was like, what is going on? She moves seats. She can't communicate. I remember the night she finally called me back because I got frustrated. I was like, first off, I don't even know if this is okay. You know, like, so I'm just going to give her my number. If she wants to call me, she can call me because I feel like I'm losing. I don't know how to read her. And so I wrote her back, and I gave her my number. It was three days later. She called me back right before a college night at our church. I got up. I answered the phone. I skipped college night. That's what I did. We went and saw James Bond her second time a few nights afterwards, and she showed up. She was actually a few minutes late. She was coming from shooting practice. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Coming from shooting practice, we had to wait to go into the theater because she had to clean her gun. It was fantastic, right? I was like, I don't know who she is. She's in the, she's in the pageant. She shoots. She was late because she had to clean her gun. This is great, you know? And we go, and we spent three, four, five hours together that night, and I'm a perfect Christian gentleman. I mean, really, that's how I describe myself in all dating scenarios. And so naturally, being the perfect Christian gentleman I was, I dropped Rachel back off to her car, and I went, uh, it's almost like, you ever... You ever hugged a pastor, and you went up to give him a hug, and they turned to the side? It's a trained thing. They teach us that in Bible college. And I was in Bible college at the time, and I thought, you know what? You just reach in, you give her just a, a side hug. And when I did, she planted one right on me. Now, listen, she's going to deny that. It's true. It's true, all right? She hadn't been here because of COVID. She's pregnant. So you're going to have months before she can even confirm or deny. By that point, it's going to be 100% true in your mind anyways. But that's a true story. And I tell you that for one reason, going into our passage this morning. You know, how you're pursued, how you're loved, often has impact on how you pursue and love, doesn't it? And if I'm honest with you guys, I've been pursued and loved well in my life. There are three moments, and think about today's passage, that I could go back to and say, man, there are three distinct moments in my life 
where I was loved incredibly well. I, and I was loved when my parents chose to have me, right? The day I came into this earth, I was loved, and I was well-loved in my family. I was loved the day that the Lord Jesus Christ saved me. He chose me. I was loved the day my wife said yes. You know, how you're pursued has impact and influence on how you pursue. How you're loved has impact and influence on how you love. And when I'm getting ready to read this passage in just a minute, if you have your Bibles, it's in Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to be today. And you're going to hear this and go, well, wait a second, Justin. What's one have to do with the other? But I promise you, in our time together today, it has everything to do with what Jesus is talking about in this passage. So Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 38. We're going to read 10 verses through verse 48. It says these words, and you may know these words. I mean, these are famous verses. It says this, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, some translations will say if a soldier asks you to carry his gear one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors, some would say Gentiles, do the same? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Let's pray before we jump into this. God, thank you for passages in the Word of God that can be applied, but that are also challenging. Now, this is tough to apply, and it brings immediate questions to my mind, God, that I need answered before I even know if, this is, if, if I'm 100% willing and understanding to be able to apply this to my life. So, God, I ask that your word in this moment penetrate our hearts and that it will bring an undeniable truth that must be applied, that brings nothing but obedience from us to apply it to our life. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen. Let me give you a little context. This is coming from the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that was ever preached. And there's some things you need to know before we dive into this. There's some things I must say to make sure we're all on the same page. And the first thing is this. This part of his message, this message in general, but especially this part, was preached to one group of people, and that was his disciples. It was not preached to a group of people who did not know Jesus as Lord. It's very, very important we understand that because it's only 
meant for believers. So if you're here today and you say, Justin, I don't know if I'm a follower of Jesus. I don't know if I'm willing to commit my life to follow him. You're going to hear some truth this morning from the word of God, but you need to know that truth is to be applied in the life of a believer and apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ and apart from experiencing a relationship with Jesus Christ, there is no way you could understand what he's getting ready to say right here. You are only willing to live it, apply it, and embrace it because of what you have experienced as a follower of Jesus. You can't get it aside from that. It's that challenging of a passage. And that's who he wrote it to. With that in mind, he mentions this word right at the beginning. You'll see it in verse 38. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evil doer. Don't resist an evil doer. That word resist means this. It means to set yourself up in opposition to. To set yourself up in opposition to. You say, what's that mean, though, Justin? Somebody comes into my life and seeks to do me harm or evil. Am I just to let them? Am I to cower down and let myself be walked over? You're a father. Somebody breaks in your home at night. Do you not protect your children? If I'm driving home tonight, someone robs me in my vehicle. Do I not have a right to defend myself? It's not what this passage is saying at all. Remember, it's written for the believer not for the unbeliever, not to be applied in law, not to be applied in government, not to be applied in those things. It is not a political passage. It is a passage that speaks to the heart and the response of a Christian. That's it. It is not a passage telling us to live as cowards. What Jesus is saying is to position, is not to position ourselves as an evil person's enemy combatant. We're not to set ourselves up as the enemy of a person who seeks us to do us evil. Think about this. If we refuse to be their enemy, that automatically negates the revenge motive in their justification. You see, there's a difference in cowering and saying, I'm not your enemy. There's a difference in our response and saying, I have to be right. And listen, this isn't about me. There's a difference in the two. It's not telling you not to fulfill your responsibilities of a husband. It's not telling you not to defend the innocent. That's not what it's saying at all. The Bible's very clear on those topics. What it is saying is as a believer that I don't go around seeking to put myself in opposition to people who seek to do me harm, that I just speak truth, I live it out, I love those people, and if it comes my way, it comes my way. I'm not your enemy. It's a very difficult thing to think about, isn't it? It just raises instant question in our minds. Here's some things I want you to know as we jump through this this morning. The very first thing is this. Jesus gave up his rights for you. So if you're like me, this is the very first thing that comes to my mind. Justin, don't I have rights? And not just rights from our nation. Don't I have rights from God? Are you telling me just to walk away from certain rights? What I am telling you is there are absolutely situations and circumstances and people we come across, come across that their future, their eternity is more important than our rights, 100%. Not all the time, but times. Think about it. Jesus gave up his rights for us. 
In Matthew 26, 53, I looked up some verses before we jumped in this passage today. Jesus, when he went to the cross, had all authority, the scripture says, to call forth 12 legions of angels to come and rescue him before the crucifixion. He didn't do it. In verse 57, you'll see that Jesus refused to make use of his authority and instead allowed himself to be laid hold of and led away by those who were going to crucify him and convict him as an innocent man. Though he could simply speak a word and cause a whole detachment of guards with torches and weapons to draw back from him and fall to the ground. That's in John chapter 18, verses 3 through 6. He willingly allowed himself to be struck on the face unjustly. In John chapter 18, verses 22 through 23. He remained silent before his accusers in Mark 14, 61. And then when the Roman soldiers crucified him and gambled, gambled for the only possessions he had left in this world, the very clothes on his back, Matthew 27 through 35, he didn't stop them. As the Jewish leaders mocked and ridiculed him as he hung on the cross, he didn't stop them. Instead, you know what Jesus did in Luke chapter 23, verse 34? He prayed. He prayed that his father would forgive them. And even though it was in his power to blind them, I would make the argument to put on display his glory in such a way that life itself couldn't possibly hold. He could have killed them. That although he could have done such a thing, he didn't. He refrained from doing it. Why? Let me tell you something I've learned through the years in reading hard passages for me to apply to my life like this one. That my first instinct is to look at that and go, well, yeah, but that doesn't mean this. But here's what I've learned. That Jesus probably meant what he said. And that if he was speaking to believers, he probably meant it the way he said it. Who am I to add or take away words from our Lord? Jesus displayed a sacrifice that I can't even begin to fathom. He gave grace to me that my mind has a hard time even understanding. I get that Jesus forgave me. Catch me, church. I know my sins. I know my heart. I know that Jesus died for me. I get all of that. I know he loved me enough to die on a cross to forgive me of my sins. The question is, do I believe that he did the very same thing as well to people who want to do me harm, do our nation harm in every way, shape, and form? Is the grace of Jesus Christ available to the rest of the world as it was to me? That's the question that becomes very, very difficult if you think about it. I have no problem saying you saved me. But when I start naming certain sins, and I start using certain names, when I take for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whosoever believes in him, instead of saying whosoever, I have no problem saying Justin. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that Justin, I have no problem using your name. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that Connor, so that Steve, I have no problem using your all's names there. 
But I think we all could think of names that we would be challenged to want to put in that sentence. Yet Jesus said that his grace extends to them as well. That is an unbelievable thought. An unbelievable thought that I don't even think my mind can comprehend. Let me share with you guys some answers to me I found in this passage when dealing with these issues. And the first one's in verse 44. Catch this. He gives this passage, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Don't go one mile, go two. If someone slaps you, give them the other cheek. If someone sues you, give them th- do all these things, right? And then he says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you're writing down anything this morning, write down this statement. It's not my statement. It was said to me by a guy I worked for in Nashville. I forget the circumstances surrounding which he said it, but I'll never forget how he said it. There was some sort of conflict going on in the church, an issue we were facing. I remember coming into staff meetings, sitting there. I do not remember the issue, but I remember him stopping everyone and saying, guys, the Jesus in you will never fight the Jesus in me. One of us are wrong. What a statement, right? The Jesus in me will never fight the Jesus in you. How can you love your enemies? Step one, Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. I'm reminded almost weekly that when I'm faced with certain people or situations that frustrate me, that if I'll just stop and pray for them, it all goes to peace. For instance, I'm not going to use names. I'm not even going to use a real situation. Let's say you have a work conflict come up this week. You're mad at your boss or you're mad at your coworker. They drive you crazy. You come into the office, and the first place you go is any place to get away from them. You sit down. You're bitter. You're just hoping they don't come around. You're frustrated at the whole situation. You know what happens to me in those times? If I'll start to pray for that person, something like, God, I don't know what's going on in their life or why they act this way or why they treat me this way, but would you move? If it's a family situation they're facing, God, could you intervene? If they're mad at me, God, would you let them know I forgive them, that I meant them no harm? God, would you use me to speak truth and love into their life? It is almost impossible to hate someone who you pray for honestly in that way. All of a sudden, my eyes, my, the, my, the eyes of my life, right, begin to be open to the fact that I don't know everything going on in their world. That I can't possibly comprehend why they act or do the things they do or why they're choosing to, cheat, to, to, to treat me the way they're treating me. But I know that I don't have to know everything, but that I have a God who can intervene. And that truth alone puts at peace my temptation to be angry with or to hate someone else. In fact, if I was to ask us to do something very unique in this time, and I'm not asking us to do this, but just imagine with me if I did. If I stopped my message right now, halfway through, and just said to you all, we're going to do an invitation, the first one today, right now. We're going to do a second one like we usually do at the end so you can respond to Jesus Christ. But I want this first invitation just to be for you, the believer who Jesus was talking to in this passage. And if you have anyone in your life who you hate or you're constantly angry with, who you don't want to be around, who you don't treat 
with the image of Christ, then I want you to pray for them right now. Does a name come to your mind? Does a person right now enter your thought? And can I ask you a question? When was the last time you prayed for them? Not prayed against them. <laughs> I'm tempted to do that. Prayed for them, right? When was the last time you prayed for them? Look at verses 45 and 46 addressing the same deal. He says in verse 44, I tell you, love your enemies and praise for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Have you ever wondered to yourself, why do bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? Is one of the reasons for you, like it has been for me in my life, that it's been so difficult to apply a passage like this one is because I look around the world, and as a pastor, I know the pain good people face. I know the loss they've experienced. I know how much they tried and never seemed to break through. And I look at a world filled with bad people who are living the success they always dreamed of, and I can't help but wonder, where is God in that? You ever wondered that? I mean, just honestly, you ever thought to yourself, how is it that so many good things are happening to bad people and so many good people are suffering? How is that? Right after Jesus tells us to pray for those who persecute us, he says these words. He says, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, for he causes his son. Don't you love that? Not S-O-N, S-U-N. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Why do good things happen to bad people and bad things to good people? With a very simple answer, I would tell you this. Because God blesses people and God disciplines people with the same end in mind. God's goals and desires do not change between his blessings and his discipline. Both have the intention of redemption. When you look out in the world and you say to yourself, why is a bad person being blessed so much by God? You know what the word of God tells us? As an example to that person of God's grace. The bad person who's received so much from God, can never stand before him in the day of judgment and say that God never showed him or her his love. God's blessing to a bad individual is a reminder of God's grace. God's discipline to a good individual is a reminder that his ways are best and that he loves us and wants the best for our life. Both have redemption in mind. And that's why as believers, both in blessing and in discipline, we honor the Lord, don't we? Whether God's giving or God's taking away, we honor the Lord. In loss, we grieve, but we don't grieve as those in the world because God gives and he takes away. This scripture says that we're reminded when we follow Jesus in such a way that this passage says that God causes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust, that he causes his rain to pour on the righteous and the unrighteous, that God's in control of it both with one intent in mind, and that is to bring all people to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And who am I? Who am I 
to tell God how he's supposed to go about doing such a thing as that. Doesn't God know best? You see, the way that God's pursued me influences my ability to understand and accept and even display that same kind of grace to other people, even if they seek to do me harm. Even if they seek to do me harm. It's a challenging thought, but a thought that I love. Not only would the Jesus in you never fight the Jesus in me, but the Jesus in me died for the one who might do harm to me. The Jesus in me died for you, even if you wanted to do harm to me. What a thought. I said this at the beginning, and it's the reason I told the story about pursuing Rachel, but ultimately, I would tell you this, that you can never give this kind of grace, that you can never go the second mile, that you can never love your enemies as a believer the way that God describes unless you have first experienced it. Ultimately, the way we treat our enemies is reflective of how much we understand what God has done for us. Remember it. While we were still his enemies, he died for us. He died for us. Romans 5.10 says it like this. We're going to close right after this. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more will we be saved by his life? Did you catch that? If while we were enemies, while we were enemies with God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more will we be saved by his life. You know what that reminds me as a believer? Ultimately, that every person you come across, enemy or friend, no matter who they are, that your life is the very mechanism which God has chosen to use to show and display his love to that individual. I've often asked this question, how would it change the way you treat someone else if you saw everyone as someone created in the image of God? It would change it drastically for me because it's not about me. What a privilege as a believer is it that God has chosen to use my life, my rights, my strength, what wisdom or knowledge he's given me, and better yet, my willingness to lay down my life as an example to the world of what he has done for me. And that's why I said at the beginning, unless you've experienced it, there's no way you could ever practice it. John Piper said it this way. I love the way he said it. It's one of those things I wish I thought of myself. He said, God saved you while you were his enemy. You didn't befriend God before he moved in on you and saved you. So the root origin of how to love our enemies is to experience being loved as an enemy of God. I've been loved well in my life. My parents loved me. My wife loves me. My children love me. I love them. But no love is greater than the fact that while I was his enemy, God so loved me to become my sins, lay down his rights, die on a cross so that I could be made right with him. 
What greater love is there than that? Thank you again for checking out our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date on our services. If you'd like to give to support our ministry, you can do that at our website. That's connectchurchpf.com. Hope you enjoyed and have a great week.